0: For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi,
1: I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Welcome to the first week of Women's History Month. I am so very excited to begin another themed month with you all. It's always a little bit easier for me when there is some sort of guideline for me to follow to think of topics and things like that. So I've got a lot of really exciting topics planned for this month, and um, I might even have a special guest planned. What? Crazy. Uh, Before I get into today's episode, though, I wanted to chat with you all a little bit about the Patreon, of course, but this is really exciting because the second episode of Patreon is now live and ready for your ears to listen to it. The second episode covers the actual book, the text of Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston, And it was really nice to close that chapter, no pun intended, and I'm very excited to begin a new book, some new research, and share some new stories. And I wanted to add this because I love that the Patreon app has this feature where you can comment on the episode itself and I think that that might actually be a really really great way for me to be able to see your thoughts and comments for upcoming episodes so I think maybe what I'll do is make some sort of promo or shorter you know segment about next month's book women talking by Miriam Taves and then you can leave your comments below that letting me know any of your thoughts your questions discussion topics so on and so forth that you have in regards to that book so that when I am preparing for the episodes I have something to go off of and you can also join in on the conversation I think it's going to be Really, really fun once more and more people join in on the fun. But I am so thankful to everybody who has already decided to join and who's been reading and following along with me. It's been so much fun. So that's all I really am going to go on about today as far as Patreon goes, except for I will remind you that. The Angry Feminist Book Club is available at the $5 level. So if you're interested, that's all you gotta pay. It's like it's like removing one cup of Starbucks coffee per month for a little extra Madigan. I mean, come on. <laughs> so I knew for this week I wanted to talk about some sort of women-led Revolution. So I was Googling that and reading a bunch of different stories. And the one that I landed on is the topic that we are going to discuss today. And that is the Women's March of Versailles, which happened right at the beginning of the French Revolution. In fact, it was one of the earliest and most defining moments of the beginning of the French Revolution. And a lot happened during that time. I like the fact that this is referred to as the Women's March, as we are probably more familiar with the Women's March that Keegan and I went to back in 2018. In fact, if you are interested in hearing about our excursion to that Women's March, that would be way back within the first like few episodes of this show. Although I don't know if I'm going to encourage you to listen to the first few episodes because I feel like the quality wasn't very good. But I mean, listen at your own risk. It's also known as the October March or October Days as it occurred over the course of two days, and it was a defining moment, as I mentioned in the early months, of the decade-long French Revolution between 1789 and 1799. But we need to go back even further than that to understand how the French people reached the boiling point that they were at in order for this march to occur. So as France was nearing the end of the 1700s, they were considered one of the wealthiest and most powerful countries in Europe. Strangely, most of its population, though, consisted of very poor farmers. There are also some key players involved that I feel the need to discuss before we get too far into the story, so I'm going to jump into it right away. Now is a good time to discuss the King and Queen of France, King Louis XVI and his wife, Queen Marie Antoinette, in order to get some facts straight about what was going on prior to the revolution and whether the role they played was malicious or merely out of ignorance. I actually wanted to do an episode a while ago on Marie Antoinette and I ended up choosing something else for some reason. I can't remember why, but I would really love to learn more about her because In my research for this week's episode, I was seeing more and more stories coming out that were kind of going against the narrative of what everyone remembers learning about Marie Antoinette as they were growing up, you know, particularly from the movie or in school, things like that. And I think it would be really interesting to cover her as a feminist fave or a problematic feminist fave. I'm not sure, but I'm going to add a little bit of her story into the topic today because I feel like it is very interesting important for context as well as her marriage to louis the 16th marie antoinette was born an austrian princess and was only 14 years old when she was forced to marry louis the 16th who was not yet king and was 15 years old himself at the time the two were chosen for marriage as a way to form an alliance between long-time enemies france and austria who had fought against each other in the seven years war the austrians offered the hand of their youngest daughter to the heir apparent to the French throne. Can you imagine living a life like this? Because I sure as hell cannot. Louis was painfully shy, and the two had only met two days before their wedding, so the marriage got off to a bit of an awkward start. Hours after they first met, they were brought to the bridal chamber on their wedding night by the groom's grandfather, King Louis XV. Can you fucking imagine? After the king blessed their bed and gave them both a kiss, he left the room to allow them to get down to business making a royal heir. However, nothing happened between the two virtual strangers that night. And apparently nothing would happen at all for a whole seven years. Apparently, Louis suffered from a condition that led to him being impotent, Unfortunately, gossip of this went rampant around Europe and the public were terrible to the king about not being able to consummate his marriage. Eventually, Marie would give birth within the year of 1777. They went on to have a pretty friendly marriage it seems like seems like they liked each other but I didn't go too far into the details so I am really excited to eventually learn more about them and actually the French Revolution as a whole because it's something that I know a little bit about but I don't know a lot of the details so I mean hey stay tuned there will probably be more episodes with this theme in the future who knows. So the French Revolution would completely ruin any sense of normalcy in the country and would eventually end in the deaths of the king, his wife, and countless others. The causes of the revolution can be narrowed down to five primary factors. Those are the estate system, absolutism, enlightenment ideas, food shortages, and the American Revolution. The estate system was the way in which French social life was marked based on class divisions. There were three estates, or levels of status, which determined almost every aspect of a person's life. The first estate included mostly members of the Roman Catholic clergy and accounted for roughly 0.5% of the population. The second estate consisted of nobles, representing 2% of the population. They could be high-ranking members of the government or even members of the king's family. They also owned about 20% of the land, which was also a symbol of status and wealth at the time. The first and second estates did not pay any taxes, but nevertheless reaped all the benefits of a tax-paying country. This caused the extreme inequality between the three estates. As the third estate comprised of the rest of the population, they had very little rights and paid nearly half of their income in taxes. Members of the third estate were peasants, lawyers, laborers, and farmers who worked on the land of nobles who owned the land that they were working on. They lived a life in poverty, rarely having enough food to feed their families. These conditions were seen as fixed, meaning it would be hard for someone in the poor third estate to one day work their way up to the first estate. This was the system used by the old regime and was glorified by Louis XVI. Absolutism refers to the complete power that the king had over his subjects— He, like many other kings, believed that their status came from God, which gave him the right to maintain the highest level of authority in the country. He often ensured that those in the top tiers of society were cared for and comfortable with adequate amounts of food. Enlightenment refers to the new ideas about how society and government should work, coming from Enlightenment philosophers who promoted using science and reasoning over tradition and religion. They championed new ideas at the time of equality and democracy. The people of France were also inspired by the American Revolution, which they assisted in quite a bit. This served as an example of a successful revolution and provided guidelines as to how a country could operate as a republic instead of a monarchy. Are you ready for some major Hamilton references throughout this episode? Because they begin now. In the American Revolution, Marquis de Lafayette served as major general in the Continental Army under George Washington. In the middle of the war, he returned to France to negotiate an increase in French support, including guns and ships. Uh-huh, yeah. I for more fun. Uh-huh, yeah. I come back before guns and ships. And so they're balanced ships. Upon his return, he blocked troops at Yorktown, while the armies of Washington and those sent by King Louis XVI, under the control of General Rochambeau and others, did their thing. Lafayette was the most important link to the American and French revolutions. He was elected as representative of the nobility to the Estates General. In the day of the Battle of Bastille, which I will talk about, he was elected commander of the newly founded National Guard of Paris, whose troops served Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette. I could talk about Lafayette and Hamilton all day, but I simply cannot, though he will be mentioned more throughout the episode. But let's talk about food shortages, because that was the primary issue with the majority of the population in Paris at the time. And these shortages absolutely ravished the country, leaving a low supply of bread due to a bad harvest. And as the demand for bread rose, no pun intended, I only noticed that upon editing, So did the price of bread, leaving many to spend half of their wages on bread alone to feed their families. So as I'm reading this, I just kind of put the math together from the sources that I've gathered and taken these notes from. It sounds like the lowest rung of society is paying half of their wages in taxes and the other half in bread, leaving absolutely no money for anything else. Before the revolution began in 1774, there was a poor harvest and the amount of grain in the country was incredibly low. In 1776, taxes were shifted, which was intended to garner the government more liquid income, but it didn't end up benefiting the population. In the summer of 1778, the crops were particularly bad and the following winter was colder than normal. Then there was flooding once the earth thawed, making the 1789 farming season a tough year for farming before planting even began. The 1789 year would be so bad that by the time that summer came around, there would be something rampant called great fear. This was a popular and widely believed conspiracy theory going on at the time that their food supply was being cut off or damaged as a way to kill off the poor population. There were, however, some attempts by the government to try to fix this problem. They banned the export of grain, began regulating the grain market again, and arranged for more grain to be imported. Unfortunately, this still didn't make much of a difference. The three estates joined for an assembly, but the third estate still felt jaded by the others, so they decided to create their own national assembly. They wanted to develop a constitutional monarchy and decided to work together to create it. Nothing was really resolved by these meetings, though, and it eventually rebranded as the National Constituent Assembly, which was a gathering of the Third Estate and some clergy and nobility members who supported the cause. They were actually meeting in the hall at Versailles when today's story takes place. Let's talk a little bit about battle at Bastille, which I mentioned, as that is very important to the lead-up of today's topic. So the same summer as the Great Fear, revolutionaries stormed and seized the medieval armory, fortress, and political prison known as Bastille. At the time, the Bastille symbolized the royal authority in the center of Paris and their abuse of power. This act emboldened more to become revolutionaries, giving them a new sense of power. The, quote, common citizens of France, particularly in Paris, began to participate in politics and government, and the poorest among them focused on the issue of the food shortage. Another large point of contention between the population and their king was that there was so much money being spent on the creation and then the up and then the upkeep of Versailles, as well as the lavish parties being thrown there while they all starved to death. I feel like now is the time that I should expose the fact that I've actually never seen the Kirsten Dunst Marie Antoinette movie. Um, I feel like as a child of the 90s and early 2000s, that's really a bad mark on my character. And I apologize, but I promise I'll see it eventually, probably one day. That's actually kind of a weird fact about me is that I've like never seen any movies. In fact, the only Kirsten Dunst movie I've ever seen that I can recall is Virgin Suicides. I've never seen Jumanji. I've never seen uh, what's the cheerleading movie? Uh bring it on. I literally just had to Google it. Another issue that the people had with Versailles was that it was 12 miles away from Paris, meaning that the king was even more farther removed from the general population and understanding them. Versailles was originally a sort of hunting lodge slash chateau for King Louis Thirteenth, and it was quite modest, but when Louis XIV took hold of it, he gave it a major makeover. It was interesting for me to learn that before it had its major makeover, it was pretty well known that the king lived in rather regular living conditions. But Louis XIV is remembered as being the vainest man ever. That was from a book called Versailles, A Biography of a Palace by Tony Spawforth. Louis XIV was the one responsible for taking the small royal hunting lodge and turning it into the most extravagant court that Europe had ever known. In charge of its renovation, he tasked the most master architects, designers, and craftsmen of the time with building the palace. He spent a huge amount of taxpayer money on Versailles, which we have learned comes from the poorest citizens, to fund the building. The palace held more than 2,000 rooms... Four dozen staircases, elaborate gardens, fountains, a private fucking zoo, Roman-style baths to frolic about in with his mistresses, of course, and old-school elevators. It held as many as 60,000 occupants on the ground by the time Louis XVI came around, and it was, in effect, its own city. It also housed many servants, and it took a staff of thousands to maintain the palace grounds. He also used taxpayer money on something in the palace called the Hall of Mirrors, which was a 240-foot long hall with 17, quote, lofty windows, which are matched by as many Venetian framed mirrors. Holy Christ. Between each window and mirror, there are pilasters made by master architects of the time. It had walls of marble embellished with bronze trophies along with statues as well. Versailles was built as a symbol for the absolute monarch of France's divinely ordained royal family and the state itself, but even before the French Revolution, people had a problem with its opulence. The king moved his court and deputies of the National Constituent Assembly into the royal city of Versailles on May 6, 1682, along with his official family, his mistresses, and his illegitimate children. In the 1780s, the economy began its tailspin and Versailles became an object of hatred for the noble citizens of France. This was also due to the extreme partying going on within the walls of the palace, again, while all the citizens were dying around them. The elaborate wardrobe for the family and the events in the palace, such as concerts, banquets, balls, and parades, were all paid for by taxpayer money. Plays and pageants were favorites of the royals, and an enormous amount of money was spent on each event. Gambling was also a pastime during the reign of multiple kings of France, and debts were often quite large. Fortunes were made and lost each night in Versailles. It was when Louis XIV's great-grandson Louis XV, who took the throne in 1715, when the public sentiment toward Versailles had a palpable shift and the population began to turn on the crown. It also didn't help that Louis XV was a notorious philanderer, and that was a huge topic of gossip. By the time Louis XVI came around to the throne in 1774, the reputation of the royals had become that of a sordid kind. Protests began to pop up around Paris, and pamphlets were passed out showing illustrations of the gambling, sexual liaisons, a ridiculous spending of the royal family within Versailles, exposing the monarchy. It's said that the palace cared so little about the protesters and what they wanted that during a protest outside of Versailles in 1786, courtiers on the inside were enjoying a luxurious ball, dancing the night away with glee. Another particular symbol of hatred within Versailles was the king's Austrian-born wife, Marie Antoinette. Within the book Fashion in Versailles, it says, Her budget overruns on an annual clothing allowance of about $3.6 million in current spending, and some years would more than double that. What in the Kardashian? There is, however, a story of her giving up the opportunity for new luxuries in certain cases, like when she turned down a set of jewels because the Navy needed a new battleship. How very sweet of her. The rumors of her lavish spending were at an all-time high leading up to the revolution. There was also the let-them-eat-cake falsehood. When told that the starving French peasants lacked bread, the queen is alleged to have declared, let them eat cake. However, there is no evidence that she ever said this. The phrase or something similar dates back to a time before Antoinette, and it doesn't seem to match up with the type of person that she was. Yes, she really, really enjoyed her nice things, but the more and more I read about her, it seems like she was also a little bit philanthropic as well. I don't know, anyone else who knows more about her than me at the time, feel free to chime in. (laughs) Versailles, it was explained in that Fashion in Versailles book, became, quote, the symbol and working center of a political and social system that many French people now saw as anachronistic and corrupt. There was one crazy party in particular that occurred on October 1st in the Opera House that got a lot of publicity. There was a banquet held there with lots of wine, which led to some interesting behavior. Soldiers allegedly got super drunk and started talking shit about the revolution, allegedly throwing the tricolored badges that the revolutionaries wore onto the floor, stomping on them and urinating on them. They also allegedly swore their loyalty to King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette. It was reported that the king partied with them all night, but evidence has shown that he was only in attendance at the party with the soldiers for a few hours. Reporters widely exaggerated the events occurring inside the palace walls for this banquet, and the rumors were spreading faster than wildfire throughout Paris. At the time, the residents had no reason not to believe these publications, as they watched their monarch dine and party in comfort while their loved ones died around them. They were also super pissed to hear about the king's soldiers shitting on them and felt disrespected by their ruler. It appeared as though King Louis and his family firmly sided with those against the revolution. Remember how I mentioned that there was an expected shipment of more grain? Well, in September, they were still waiting on that promise, though there did still appear to be an effort on the government's behalf to make it happen. When the supplies still failed to appear in October, however, the citizens became reckless and angry, not to mention hungry. When we don't get enough nutrients to our brains, we have very poor decision-making skills. Take it from a former anorexic. (laughs) There had been many calls for organized protests in the days following the shindig. Protests began on October 4th with people marching in the streets, shouting their anger at Versailles, as well as crying out for the food scarcity. But they wouldn't all come together until the following day. Before I get to the events on October 5th, Let's take a quick break for our sponsor.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. shopify.com slash realm are you ready to shop Rakuten's big give week is back
1: All right, we're back. So let's get into the actual shenanigans that went down on October 5th. So in the early morning hours, they all joined in the streets of eastern Paris, beating a drum. Gradually, more and more women from various directions and various districts, some of them carrying makeshift weapons like cudgels, which is a short, thick stick, and knives. Fun! Now, you know I suck at pronouncing French things, so I'll give this my best shot. The day began at the Hôtel de Ville, which is Paris's city hall, where between 5,000 and 10,000 people, mostly women, stood outside demanding the grain stores to be released to the people of Paris. They received no response from city hall, so the crowd decided to march toward the monarchy at Versailles. They now armed themselves with muskets, pikes, and clubs and headed out of Paris onto their 12-mile journey, which is the length of a half-marathon, if you didn't know. Can you imagine doing that when you've barely eaten in years? Not to mention, it started to rain. The National Guard arrived under the command of Major Hermigny, but they were unable to control the crowds of protesting women. So Hermigny called on an old pal of mine, in the meantime, the crowds had raided City Hall, taking hundreds of weapons and two cannons. They were only persuaded out of burning it to the ground and hanging its officials by someone named Stanislas Millard, who promised to lead them to the gates of Versailles himself to demand bread from the king. Stanislaus was the one dude in the sea of women choosing to storm Versailles. Also, many of the women involved in this march, as well as Stanislaus, were part of the storming of the Bastille. They agreed to follow him, and the crowd began marching and chanting on its way to the gates of Versailles. Lafayette showed up late to City Hall, and by the time he got there, the crowd had moved on. He sent a courier ahead of his men to alert their king, and he hesitantly took his place as the leader of the 15,000 men into the rain. Before his men had even left City Hall, though, the crowd had made it to the king's doorstep. Since they had gotten word that the protesters were coming, they were able to lock all of their doors to the palace and the royals were sent off to their private apartments for safety. By the time they had reached the gates of the palace, the crowd had amassed to numbers between 10,000 and 30,000 people. The initial group was primarily focused on the issue of the food shortage, but some of the stragglers who joined along brought with them their own agendas, such as forcing the king to relocate to Paris, or even intending to enter the palace to kill the king and queen. More specifically, though, the queen. It had taken six long hours in the rain to march from City Hall to Versailles, not to mention they were dragging along two huge cannons, and the women were exhausted. They would end up spending another entire 24 hours inside the palace walls. They were surprisingly greeted warmly by magistrates who offered them wine, but they were, however, prohibited from entering palace grounds entirely. That part of the grounds were protected by the Flanders Regiment and backed by Swiss guards. As I mentioned earlier, the assembly was having a meeting in the hall, and hundreds of the protesters collapsed on the benches in the hall where the assembly met, resting their muddy clubs and knives atop legislative documents and fancy furniture. They took the group by surprise, but the members of the assembly agreed to hear them out. The group explained that they needed the assembly's help, so together they wrote out a decree for the king, asking him to make every effort to get more grain circulating throughout the population. Six of the women were then deputized by the assembly so that they could enter the palace and make their case to the king directly. Louis had just been out hunting and had only just arrived back when he met the delegation of six women. They joined in the king's apartment and told him their demands for more food. The king responded with sympathy, and arrangements were made to disperse food from the royal store, with more to come promised. In the meantime, and his guards arrived at Versailles, but they didn't do much to interfere, as Louis was against using force in this situation. It has been recorded that soldiers and the protesters even made friends with each other throughout the long night discussion. Tempers did rise and fall throughout the night, and there were a few moments of contention, as well as a couple of shots fired, but apparently nothing ever came to full-blown violence, which is amazing to me that there could be just a few casual gunshots, no big deal, no need to break out into violence and chaos. As the night of October 5th came to a close and the morning sun of October 6th came to light, it became clear that there were still parts of the crowd that were dissatisfied with the progress made. They wanted more action on the part of the monarchy and were convinced that the queen would reverse the efforts that her husband had already promised. They eventually grew so agitated that they found a hidden and unlocked gate into the private areas of the palace and went in search for the queen. Thankfully, the queen had fled and the crowd struggled to find their way through the 2,000 plus rooms of Versailles. Lafayette and his guard are remembered for being the ones to protect the king and queen from the mob. Imagine the games of hide-and-seek in that place, though. As soldiers rushed to stop the rogue protesters, one guard fired at two women, killing one. This, of course, fired up the group to retaliate. Two soldiers were then killed and dismembered. All is fair in love and war, right? Eventually, more manpower was assembled, and they were able to evacuate all protesters from the palace. Now they left an angry mob standing at the gates of Versailles. Fun suggested that the king address the crowd, and the king agreed. He went out onto the balcony and told the crowd that he and the royal family would be traveling to Paris. He also put on one of those tricolored badges and declared his love for his people. His words were generally well received by the crowd, with only a few boos, and there were some cheering for the guy, too. Louis XVI then left the balcony to be replaced by his wife, who was not met with the same cheers. The crowd, however, did seem to be impressed by the fact that she would come to speak with them after the intense vitriol against her. They were threatening her life, after all. The royal family then spent the morning preparing to travel to Paris, and that very afternoon, King Louis, Queen Marie Antoinette, and their immediate family left Versailles to Paris. Louis XVI and his assembly moved into the Tuileries Palace in Paris where he could be more a part of the citizens' lives. Now, though it was a palace, it hadn't been inhabited for a really long time and it wasn't very fancy at all. And since the family was forced to leave Versailles on such short notice, nothing had been prepared for their arrival and the occupants who had been dwelling on its premises were kicked out abruptly. Nice. This was the first time in many, many years that France had been governed from Paris and not within the walls of Versailles, and Louis XVI and his family would never see Versailles again. In the summer of 1792, the political crisis in France took a radical turn when a group of insurgents attacked the royal residence in Paris and arrested the king on August 10th. Within the following month, violence between the Parisian insurrectionists and counter-revolutionaries amassed hundreds of deaths, mostly on the part of those fighting for the king. The Legislative Assembly was replaced by the National Convention, which proclaimed the abolition of the monarchy and the establishment of the French Republic. On January 21, 1793, King Louis XVI was sent to the guillotine, and his wife Marie Antoinette joined him in the same fate nine months later. According to the Smithsonian Magazine website, following the revolution, the abolition of the guide system that controlled who could be a butcher, a baker, or cheesemaker and how they did their jobs made it easier to open restaurants. Also, since so many aristocrats fled or were executed, their former cooks and servants had to find new employment. Paris then became the center of the new restaurant scene, which, to some degree, it still remains today. And I find it really interesting that all of this, if you really think about it, started with a bunch of really fucking angry women who were really fucking hungry. And can't we all relate to that a little bit? Though this was a much shorter episode than usual, I hope that you all took something important away from this episode, besides the fact that angry and hungry women really can do anything they set their minds to. The other thing that I think is really important is that women have been coming together, banding together to fight for a cause for a very, very long time. I think that there is this idea historically of women being small and meek and waiting for the men around them to fight for them, and stories like this truly show that women have always had the power to be just as mighty and have the ability to change the world, the government, you know, the powers at be just as much as the men around them. I really enjoyed the humorous aspects of this story. I really enjoyed learning more about French history. I feel like the estate system is something that I really wasn't all of that aware of before, so I'm glad that I've done the research on all of that. And I love to think of the similarities of the women during this time who were rallying together for food and the women who rallied together against Trump's election for the Me Too movement, for Black Lives Matter, for so many other movements in more recent days. It's nice to know that our sisterhood has lasted so long. I could have very easily gone down a million more rabbit holes in different sections within the French Revolution and the women's part within it. But I think that, if anything, it was just a really great jumping off point for me to have more episode topics in the future. If I'm ever, you know, at a loss for thinking of a new topic, I'm definitely going to throw in an episode about Marie Antoinette. But I do have some really, really exciting, excellent episodes planned for this month that I think will all be very relevant topically, things that you're going to be really excited to hear, and like I kind of teased in the beginning, there may also be a very special guest that you've heard from before that it seems like you all really enjoyed so I hope that you all really enjoyed today's story for anyone who has more knowledge about the French Revolution about the March on Versailles so on and so forth if there's any information that you want to share with me that I can then relay back to the listeners, please feel free to email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angry feminist. If you also have topic suggestions for me, that's also a really great way to reach out to me. Please let me know and I will definitely add it to the list. I'm not going to go over the whole spiel again, but if you want to join the Angry Feminist Book Club, there will be a link in the show notes wherever you're listening to this podcast at the moment. There's also a link in the bio on the Instagram page, or you can just go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood Feminist. Also, remember to use any of the promo codes that you heard about during this episode if you want to have some amazing or get some much-needed self-care on. It really is a great way to show your support for the show and for you to get a little something nice as well. Last but not least, if you haven't left a review for the show, please go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review with just a little sentence about why you enjoy the show. Get people to press play. You know what I'm saying? And if you like to listen on Spotify, you can also rate the show there and I will be eternally grateful. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for kicking off Women's History Month with me this week. I love you all so, so very much. That is all I have for you today. With all of it being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye.